midnight, United Auto Workers walked off the job at three plants belonging to the nation's big three automakers. We mean business. It's time to make a higher wage. Facilities in Missouri, Ohio, and Michigan, the first targets of the UAW strike beginning one minute after their labor contract expired with Ford, General Motors, and Stellantis. It's about getting their share and our share of economic justice. I think this strike is here to stay for a while. When you have a combination of a very tight labor market on the one hand and workers being hit by an unanticipated bout of inflation, you normally get catch-up wage negotiations. The big question for all of us, looking at the economy, looking at the markets, Will it have demonstration effects? Will it be a catalyst for many more strikes in the US like we've seen happen in the UK? And it's not just labor, it is also energy. So this is another bout. You know, for those of us who lived through the 70s, we remember that there were two shocks. Two, not one. So think of this as being potentially a second, much smaller shock. And it'll be interesting to see how it proceeds. This is the Financial Sense News Hour. Now, here's the Financial Sense News Team. U.S. inflation accelerated at the fastest pace of more than a year last month. The August CPI rose six tenths of a percent, and producer prices followed with the largest gain since June of 2022, advancing eight tenths of a percent. It's now annualizing at close to 10% a year. Folks, inflation is back and likely to head higher, hurting most Americans as wages have fallen behind inflation for the third consecutive year. And to make matters worse, oil prices broke out this week, crossing the $90 a barrel level on its way to 100 That is not good news for the Fed as higher energy prices work their way through the economy. Stocks were mixed this week with tech stocks leading the sell-off on Friday. Hi everyone, I'm Jim Poplava and welcome to the Financial Sense News Hour. Up on deck is Ron Williams. Ron sees the beginning of a new commodity super cycle. I will also be speaking with Mark Chandler on the status of the dollar. Despite the latest move by BRIC countries, Mark sees the dollar remaining the main currency of international trade. And finally, Chris Sheridan and Chris Poplava will be here with another edition of Smart Macro. But first, Let's find out the stories moving this week's markets with Ryan Poplava. Ryan? It was an important week for the financial markets with no end to the news items. But if I were to focus on the main drivers, it was improving economic data and rising concerns over inflation that might influence Fed policy next week and in the months to come. Investors took inflation data in stride midweek, which was followed by hikes from the European Central Bank and cuts from the People's Bank of China. Economic data was supportive of economic improvement outlook, but as we've seen over the past month or so, investors have already priced out a hard landing and are more worried about a tight labor market and rising energy prices, which could lead the Fed to do more than just one more rate hike this year. Recent IPO results and chatter has stirred some risk taking in stocks late in the week, only to see those gains vanish on options expiration, auto workers strikes, against three large companies and sober news from Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company to end the week on a sour note. Getting into the weeds on the economic front, the consumer price index rose 0.6% as expected, with the core excluding energy and food up 0.3%. 
The year-over-year growth was 3.7 for the total versus 3.2% in July, with core up 4.3% less than in July's 4.7% growth. With the core number still well above the Fed's target, nobody is expecting cuts anytime soon. Thursday's producer price index was in line at 1.6% for the core reading year-over-year, and 2.2% for total, both palatable numbers for Wall Street Thursday. However, the unemployment claims came in at 220000 a level associated with a tight labor market. August retail sales were stronger than expected, up 0.6%. And finally, on Friday, we got the positive Empire State Manufacturing Index, which was up to a positive 1.9, up from the August's negative 19 number. And the preliminary September University of Michigan's consumer sentiment which dropped slightly to 67.7. The key information there was that data was supportive of consumer spending, strong jobs, and inflation numbers, which are still above the Fed's target. On central banks, the Bank of Japan's governor stated that Japan's policy rate could be lifted out of negative territory this year. The European Central Bank raised rates a quarter point with a hint they may pause while the People's Bank of China lowered its required reserve ratio a quarter point for banks that don't currently have a 5% reserve ratio. In industry news, multiple airline companies warned rising energy prices will cut into the third quarter profits, including Spirit Airlines, Frontier Group, American Airlines, and Delta Airlines. The Dow Jones Transport Index has been in decline just as U.S. oil prices have been on the rise these past couple of months. Concerns the UAW and the automakers were headed for a strike Thursday came true on Friday with strikes at each of the three big manufacturing plants after failing to reach a deal. The effects will show up in industrial production and could lead to supply inflationary pressure. At the individual company level, there was a lot of key news this week. Tesla jumped 10% on Monday after an upgrade from Morgan Stanley pointing out the benefits of its computer data. Oracle fell 13.5% on disappointing earnings guidance Tuesday, while Apple released its new product line featuring the new iPhone 15. Netflix Wednesday fell 5.2% in response to news its ad business is not material yet on revenues. And Friday, Adobe underwhelmed investors with its fiscal fourth quarter guidance and fell 4.2%. Well, big news for these companies, the real trading catalyst came from Arm Holdings IPO, on Thursday, and news from Taiwan Semiconductor Friday that moved the markets. Arm Holdings, a British semiconductor company, re-entered the public market following its acquisition from SoftBank in 2016 for $32 billion. The triumphant initial public offering on Thursday saw a remarkable 24.7% increase in its stock price, surging from an opening price of $56.10. This surge in arm holding stocks sparked a surge in investor confidence with the most notable gains observed in key risk on sectors. Among the 30 Dow stocks, 28 recorded gains and all 11 sectors within the S&P 500 exhibited positive momentum. Undoubtedly, favorable economic data contributed to the IPO's success, but the IPO itself served as the primary driving force behind the day's market activity. Unfortunately, the positive sentiment was dampened by several factors on Friday. A Reuters article reported that Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company would be delaying chip equipment shipments, casting a shadow on the semiconductor industry. Additionally, the impact of the UAW strike 
soaring oil prices exceeding $90 per barrel, and the occurrence of a triple witching options expiration day with a staggering $2.3 trillion in notional options exposure set to expire, as reported by CNBC, collectively deflated the bullish enthusiasm that had characterized Thursday's gains. To summarize the week, stronger economic data and rising oil prices are concerning investors the Fed may consider more tightening talk at next week's meeting. While the Fed futures data still paints an above 90% probability of no hike at the next meeting, the October meeting looks to be a coin toss. Individual company news from top NASDAQ names and industry news from airlines and Taiwan Semi also helped contribute to take back any gains made in the major indices despite risk on appetites charged up on ARM's IPO. That's it for this week in the financial markets. Up next, Ron William, this week's guest technician. Certainly the things that I've focused on over the course of the years, what should be the intermediate objective of monetary policy? What is it you should be trying to control? My views on that have shifted enormously. And of course, the failure of many of the policies that I originally recommended has just cemented the idea that we really know, understand, and control less than we think we can. And more recently, I've become a a big advocate of what they call complexity economics, which basically starts off by saying the economy is not linear and deterministic. It's highly nonlinear and complex and adaptive. And there's a whole sort of literature out there about complex adaptive systems. And the only people that don't seem to recognize that the economy is a complex adaptive system are many of the economists themselves. To listen to this full interview, in addition to gaining access to all of our premium content airing during the week, go to financialsense.com and hit the subscribe button. Give Financial Sense Wealth Management a call today to get your retirement plan started. We can help to make sure you have the income you need to live the lifestyle you want, how to maximize government benefits from Social Security to Medicare, reduce taxes and plan for future inflation, or protect your assets with an estate plan. Don't leave your retirement up to chance. Contact Financial Sense Wealth Management today at 888-486-3939 or email us at grow at financialsense.com. Advisory services offered through Financial Sense Advisors, Inc., a registered investment advisor. Securities offered through Financial Sense Securities, Inc., member FINRA SIPC. Both companies doing business as Financial Sense Wealth Management. Well, if you recall this summer when oil prices got down below 70, I said, watch out, load up the truck, because by this fall, we'll be at $90 oil, and I think it's going higher. Where does it go from here, and what does all of this mean for the market? Joining us on the program this week is Ron Williams, macro strategist for RW Advisors. And Ron, you sent us a a chart pack, and I just want to let our listeners know, we're going to post this on our website. So when you hear Ron and I talking about some of the things, uh, the charts and the information, you can actually go to our website and look at the stuff that we're talking about. So let's begin. Your title is Three Bears in Goldilocks. Well, a story, and in this case, a cartoon speaks uh, many words. Uh, and it's the old story that we know about the three bears in Goldilocks. And it's a metaphor essentially for three bear risks as we progress into year end. 
uh, that will likely overshadow the revived Goldilocks story, particularly as we go into this so-called September effect, which could be particularly chilling for three key reasons. One, as you just highlighted, rising crude oil prices, which technically has officially broken to the upside um, as part of a uh, close to one year base recovery pattern. Two, the impact on inflation. We just got CPI numbers come out uh, slightly higher than expected. Uh, Energy could be the early leader of creating that inflation risk to the upside, likely as we go into the new year, according to my work. And then the Third, in terms of the macro potential risks, China, certainly market uh, pressure with the potential economic uh, tail risk uh, to follow. Any one of these areas alone or combined are are things to consider as part of a scenario plan in in the weeks and months ahead. And it's it's mostly the uncomfortable combination of rallying oil, the US 10-year yield at new cycle highs, uh, which is disrupting the Goldilocks soft landing scenario and triggering rotation into persisting inflation and sticky rates narrative, um, adding further pressure on the equities and valuation side. You know, one of the things that really strikes me is you see the U.S. dollar going up because of our interest rates and you have rising oil prices. As bad as things are in the U.S. with rising gasoline and oil prices, it's much worse overseas because if their currency is depreciating against the dollar, and they're paying for oil in dollars, it's even worse for them. Yes, absolutely. And either way, we're going to see it, uh, it translated across the board as oil uh, tops in our ranking model on, on the slide. It's been up there ever since uh, August uh, into September now. So it's, 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 it's been a while um, alongside US 10-year yields. And we see that um, holding up. That's West Texas, but you can see that on, on Brent. And of course, um, that move will be magnified um, as we uh, look at it across different currencies. The dollar view is something worth maybe revisiting uh, in our discussion because it, it, it's medium to long-term bearish, but the short term is clearly has been a, a sharp upside so far. Uh, but for now, it's at a make or break territory looking like it may roll over in the next few weeks. That's amazing. I'm looking at oil right now. We're only a couple pennies away from our forecast of $90 by fall. Um, In terms of this breakout, uh, we see oil going beyond 90. What is your chart telling you? Certainly 90 would would be a good uh, milestone target, uh, but the uh, broader measure would be into the $100 uh, ceiling, uh, which is a minimum price objective from uh, that base pattern that is close to about a year old now, uh, old Wall Street phrase within the technical analysis space, the bigger the base, the higher in space. Uh, so if you just measure the geometric range um, of that long-term recovery pattern, um, that, that can equate to um, the target. Uh, also interesting that we're, uh, that we're seeing an impulsive move. Um, that's, that's the indicator I, I have there at the bottom, uh, just highlighting uh, the what we've seen right now, which is in excess of 30% from the lows, likely to, to hit on on the targets just, just um, mentioned. What's interesting is investor sentiment is supportive, and we've had a, a, a big surge from extreme lows. Uh, so there seems to be a divergence in terms of uh, inflation, commodities, and oil uh, views. Uh, but there is one part of the market that has turned wildly bullish and looking uh, for further upside in the second half of this year and into 2024. Um, on our cycle model, we have several. 
Um, this one is the Foundation Study of Cycles, which I'm part of the leadership team. Um, and they have a mathematical model which can be applied to major cross assets. On the oil market, interestingly, it's showing um, a complex timing pattern. So it could be any number of uh, scenarios where we either get one, a sharp upsurge uh, in the near term, two, um, uh, a sideways consolidation uh, where, where we could break out later on, or uh, likely the biggest move into the new year, which ties in with our inflation upside risk framework. Now, you have a chart here that has the U.S. 10-year Treasury yield of 4% signals big oil rise. Explain that for our listeners. Well, it, it, it highlights the inflation story in terms of both of these proxies being um, elevated. But, of course, the, 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 there's a negative gap uh, on, on crude side. And, and as we get to that new cyclical high on rates, um, that would likely... Uh, intensify and create a, that that uh, feedback loop uh, into oil. And, and if I go back to the original three bears and the Goldilocks story, it's the rising crude oil prices with the US 10-year um, at New Year cycles, like, uh, which is likely to disrupt you know that soft landing scenario into year-end, but more likely uh, the new year of 2024. One of the most disturbing charts that you have and something we follow closely is the depletion of oil stockpiles are at a 40-year low? Well, if you look at it on a, on a, on a global basis, it's it's still flat, um, but but not as bearish as if you look at it um, in, in U.S. terms. And it's, it's a well-known story now. Uh, it's been uh, in the headlines for a while. Um, we're at 40-year lows in terms of uh, U.S. Uh, strategic petroleum reserves. And there's all kinds of um, uh, worst-case um, analysis in terms of what that means, but essentially supply uh, uh, side is being squeezed, um, uh, US side, uh, but also vis-a-vis uh, -vis OPEC uh, with both Saudi, did uh, bring, uh, I think, 1 million uh, barrels last month and reporting potential cutback. Even Russia was uh, largely flouted for offering support um, and and just to circle back to the original point, U.S. government uh, almost ceased the drawing of SPR. In fact, it just saw the smallest change in over a year and now at 40-year lows. And the other thing that you show, inflation contrarian setup. We're in the camp that inflation is not going away. We don't buy the Wall Street story that we basically don't have to worry about inflation. I see a return. Well, absolutely. It's, it's, a, it's a historic consensus contrarian uh, set up right now, where we're at a, a polarized extreme. Market consensus is looking for uh, super extended uh, inflation depressed levels. Um, this is anchored uh, by the most uh, most consensus uh, view uh, prior to two thousand eight. New, it's 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 a a new strategy is required for what is likely to be an inflation surprise to the upside and the disruptive uh, environment to follow. Uh, one of the ongoing themes that we've built um, on the original work of Bank of America is this idea of goodbye FANG 1.0, hello FANG 2.0. Um, so if we kind of rotate from the growth uh, story of, of the mega cap stops or the Magnificent Seven, their time has been uh, magnificent and likely to now uh, downgrade to great, <laughs> uh, which will likely hinder the market uh, in, the, in the near term. But in the meantime, what do we do in this inflationary disruptive environment? And so the new thesis is industries, not stocks, um, and they are fuel, 
agriculture, aerospace, and defense, uh, nuclear, and gold. So I've spoken about this before on financial sense, and uh, the timing uh, may be a little bit skewed because of the market rotations and, of course, the, the different um, themes that we've been ebbing through. Uh, but right now, the F part of FANG 2.0 is reviving, um, and there are a number of ways of playing this uh, as uh, the breakout extends. Another chart that you have that we're 100% agreement, commodity super cycle ahead. You were showing some previous cycles, the oil embargo, inflation bust, the Gulf War, and the SNL crisis, and then, of course, the peak oil in 2008. And I mean, right now, we're, we own gold, we own silver, we own base metals, we own oil, we own ags, we own uranium. We're almost 40% in commodities, and a lot of people think we're nuts, but I don't think so. Well, interesting. I was just talking with a client yesterday who, who was looking at the asset allocation of his portfolio and um, wondering how to add more commodities within an equity-centric uh, mix. And I was looking at the um, stock market weighting of commodities over the last few decades, and it's it's extraordinary how low we are now <laughs> versus uh, where we were, I mean, a decade ago, but more specifically in the 70s. I think things will change. I think commodities are going to be, I mean, not only scarce um, and demand supply uh, shocks active um, with a super cycle ahead, but I think this is going to start to be sexy. <laughs> I think people are going to want to know more. Uh, they're going to want to add it to their portfolio. And suddenly uh, the index may even be repriced as it, as it had done um, in previous uh, times. But right here and now, what this ratio is showing um, is that commodities do remain on this verge of a super cycle. Um, and this is quite literal. We're talking about generational uh, long-term patterns. Um, it's a reflection of the ongoing restrictive monetary conditions for financial assets, the consequential secular inflation uh, forces ahead, which are longer and higher. Uh, that's also part of long-term cycle work that we do based on the Kondratiev wave, which I, I, I briefly spoke about on, on the last segment um, here at Financial Sense. I spoke about the inflationary uh, drivers of Kondratiev wave, but also what that means in terms of innovation cycles uh, and that uh, year-to-date melt-up in tech and, and, and AI. It's the same cycle used uh, for different purposes, but right here and now, uh, just identifying the inflationary forces ahead. This is also part of that uh, Kondratiev wave winter season. Um, and as everyone knows, amplified by a great debt burden. You know, the other thing that uh, people need to realize, uh, you take a look at the market cap of Apple, it's greater than the entire almost commodity sector. And what people don't understand, because it's such a small weighted sector, when money moves into it, it has explosive moves. I think of what, you know, what you've seen in oil just the last month or what you could see in oil and gold and other commodities is so small that when money starts to gravitate and move into it, it can be explosive where, you know, you wake up one day, the price of gold is up a hundred bucks or silver's up two or three dollars. Let's talk about that because the weighting within the S&P and major indexes is so small. When large amounts of money come in, there's nothing but explosive upside. Well, absolutely. I mean, it tends to be more of an iceberg move. It takes time, uh, but it does happen um, throughout history, uh, particularly when markets mean revert from contrarian extremes. And that is the case in the super cycle in commodities ahead. It will likely take a while, uh, but certainly uh, useful and attractive to get in early um, at these uh, deep valuation uh, levels. Um, and 
Interesting also to note last year, we don't have to go back so far. What were the two markets that were holding up? I mean, everything was pretty much down. It was US dollar up and, and, and energy. Uh, but nine months later, uh, we know we know how the, the movie uh, or trailer uh, ended. Uh, we had to take uh, a break. There was a long-term consolidation. Now, uh, sectors like XLE is 5% from the uh, extreme highs. Um, and interestingly, uh, oil, um, is about close to 50% underperforming uh, with potential catch-up to go. So those who, that are, are, are positive in the energy space right here now, as we have this uh, technical uh, uh, breakout signal, uh, which is also marrying up with the, the macro and the fundamental, this rare combination of all three, um, there are a number of ways to, to play this. And, and, and that would be, yes, outright uh, crude, but also um, the uh, sector play too. One more thing I wanted to get to is the seasonality. Typically around this time of the year, September tends to be a bad month for the stock market. And on the day you and I are talking, the markets are rallying across the board. Uh, let's talk about seasonality in September. Yes, yeah, so the headline macro point is combined with the seasonality timing is that this so-called September effect could be particularly chilling this year due to you know all of the different risks that we just uh, discussed just now, rising crude oil, uh, impacting inflation, um, and potential uh, headwinds from China, uh, with you know other things um, uh, as well to consider. Uh, but if we just look at the seasonality pattern standalone, statistically, um, the bottom line is it's the worst performing. Uh, month in the year, generating a lowest return of minus 0.6. Just depends on which sample period you look at. Uh, this is on the S&P 500 going back to the 60s. Um, and the lowest probability of a positive return of 46%. So uh, it's it's a kind of a 50-50 split as to whether the September can be negative or positive. And that, that's an important point to, to, to make. It's not a certainty. Um, it's a probability. Uh, while this annual timing pattern is one of the most reliable, uh, it, we also have to keep in mind some of the heuristic exceptions uh, and the best and worst sample periods. And for your listeners just to know, uh, the worst September um, on record is minus 12%, best 9%, and the average standard deviation is 4.4%. Uh, what's interesting is if you look at um, the days of September, it's the back end that we should be uh, wary of. Um, according to uh, analysis that, that uh, I've been doing. Um, so literally, as we speak, uh, the coming weeks ahead, going into October, uh, the anniversary month for market falls and crashes uh, is, is something to keep in mind. It's it's largely unexplainable as to why these things happen. Just think of it as an anniversary pattern and a seasonal timing overlay too. But just recall 1987 Black Monday, 9-11, um, and the failure of Lehman Brothers ahead of 2008 all occurred in this period, and uh, each resulted in a big sell-off. So given what you see right now, commodity super cycle ahead of us, a big catch-up for oil, how would you be positioning from a macro point of view, given these uh, the, the environment that we're operating in? So the, the view as part of a multi-factor uh, technical approach um, is still signaling late cycle um, with recession pushing further ahead uh, into uh, the new year. So, so that's that's the one big change uh, to our model. Um, but ultimately, uh, you know, growth continues to slow. Uh, credit pressures uh, follow. We just saw unemployment numbers 
uh, ebb a little bit higher recently. So the, the signs are there, um, and the, the argument between Goldilocks soft landing versus hard landing time will tell. But ultimately, as part of that transition, we're going to get growth value rotation re be revived. We don't see it right now in, in, in tech, the tech space, but it will likely um, prevail. Keep in mind uh, that the latest numbers on narrow leadership within the index is only 5% year-to-date gain from 493 stocks within the S&P 500. 66% um, is, as everyone knows, uh, the Magnificent Seven, the growth tech uh, space. So all we need is the Magnificent Seven to become great, be demoted to great <laughs> from Magnificent and rock a little bit about, and that will create some uh, mean aversion risk. Ultimately, what the recommendation is a barbell strategy where you continue to uh, hold your risk asset trades on a selective basis, take profit where possible, um, and look for downside protection. In parallel, build up defensive plays such as gold, cash, quality bonds, and non-correlated portfolio risk. And keep in mind that inflationary disruptive theme that will continue with us. Um, and it's really good for us to readapt our strategies accordingly. All right. Well, listen, Ron, as I mentioned, we are going to make your chart pack available on our website. So a lot of the things that Ron and I have been discussing the in this uh, broadcast, you can just go to the website at Financial Sense and we'll have it on there and you can just follow through. A lot of great information. Ron, if our listeners would like to follow you, tell them how they can do so, please. Well, I'm updating uh, regularly on social media, so LinkedIn and Twitter, um, and um, happy to give a uh, complimentary trial uh, to those that email uh, rwilliam at rwadvisory.com and just mention that you uh, listened into our interview here on Financial Sense, and I'd be happy to uh, share some key insights. All right. Ron, as always, thanks for joining us on the program. Have yourself a great rest of the year. Thank you very much, Jim. Financial Sense Wealth Management has put together a portfolio of high-dividend-paying blue chips, high-quality interest-paying bonds, and preferred stocks. Our income account portfolio is specifically designed to help meet the needs of retirees, pension funds, and foundations looking to increase income and reduce taxes. To learn more, contact us at 888-486-3939 or email grow at financialsense.com. Advisory services offered through Financial Sense Advisors, Inc., a registered investment advisor. Securities offered through Financial Sense Securities, Inc., member FINRA SIPC. Both companies doing business as Financial Sense Wealth Management. Recently, the BRIC countries gathered in South Africa talking about a new currency. What does this mean for the U.S. dollar? Will it change the monetary system? Joining us on the program is Mark Chandler. Mark, you're going to be speaking at a foreign policy summit. I wonder if you could give us your sort of your views in terms of what does this mean? Will this be an alternative currency? Is it going to be less people buying dollars? Translate that for us. Yeah, you know, it's my career. I mean, my career goes back shortly after the Plaza Agreement in 1985. And through my career, perhaps like you, Jim, I've seen many pretenders come along. Back when I first began my career, many people thought it was Japan, the world's largest saver, the world's largest exporter at the time. That that was, the yen was going to replace the dollar. And then 
It was going to be the euro, late 90s when the euro was born. Not a basket currency, but many of the West European currencies merged into a single currency. That was going to replace the dollar. I was at Brown Brothers when crypto was launched. And I remember reading some bank research arguing that it was crypto that was going to replace the dollar. In recent years, it's been the Chinese currency that was going to replace the dollar. I don't see it. But these countries come together, the BRICS, which together are something a bit more than half the world's population or so. And this captured a lot of those people's imagination are focusing on de-dollarization. That's the buzzword these days, de-dollarization. And I think it's really mostly a myth, mostly talk. What the Germans have this phrase called schadenfreuden, which basically means taking pleasure at someone else's misery. And I think that the little uh, banking flare-up we saw, the crisis we saw earlier this year, and several other setbacks like Afghanistan, many people I think out there are talking about looking again for an alternative dollar. And I don't think the BRICS... I put it like this, the BRICS, we talk about them as a singular noun, but there's nothing that they have in common. It seems to me that there's no real effort to have an alternative currency, partly because I think India and China want to have more internationalization of their currency. What's the point if the RMB is going to try to be internationalized and India wants the same thing? Why would they really back a different currency, a new currency? So I think that the BRICS summit is going to include uh, they've invited other countries. But I think that there's a lot of this de-dollarization talk. I'll give you a couple of quick examples. China has two big initiatives under President Xi. One was the Asian in- uh, Infrastructure Investment Bank, and the other is the Belt Road Initiative. Both of them take dollars, loan dollars. The AIIB, that Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, they also lend dollars. The Belt Road Initiative lends dollars. And so I think that this idea that they're going to supplant the dollar, I think is a, probably a misnomer. I think at best what China's doing, what the BRICS will do is supplement the dollar and perhaps there'll be more trade in local currencies. But I remember 10 years ago when Lula was the president of Brazil, he also suggested there'd be more trade in local currencies. That's what he wanted. But here's a sort of a, a nuts and bolts problem. Think about what's happened between uh, Russia and India. India is not sanctioning Russia after its invasion of Ukraine. They are big buyers of oil from Russia. They've been paying rupee because, uh, of course, they can't pay dollars to Russia. Russia's kicked out of the dollar block or the dollar zone or access to the dollar. But now Russia complains that because the rupee is a restricted currency, that it is not freely traded, it's uh, not freely convertible, just says we don't want more rupee. And this is the problem. The dollar is used not because of some hegemonic U.S. power or something like that, but it's used because it's freely accessible and the market for it is liquid and deep and freely accessible. That is, you can buy and sell dollars as much as one pleases. So specifically, I think out of all the things that we in the U.S. should keep us up at night, and there's many of them. The BRICS is not really one of them. It's not, it's not. It's hardly a challenge. Uh, they will not have a common currency. There's no talk about that or no movement towards it. And there's some talk that they may use a gold, gold-backed currency. And as much as many people in the markets would like that, I just don't think that the gold at current prices, call it around $1,900 an ounce, that there's not enough gold at that price to really back the BRIC currency if it's going to be meaningful. One of the issues and one of the advantages the U.S. has is a deep financial market. So if I'm a country, let's just say I'm China or even Brazil, I'm trading with the U.S., I trade in dollars. I got those dollars, and if I don't need them, I can always reinvest them in our markets, our deep markets like our treasury market. We have some of the highest yields. That's something you don't have in China. That's something you don't have in India, and it's something you don't have in Brazil. However, what about the issue of, let's say I am Brazil, 
I'm trading with China. I've got excess yuan that I really don't need. What about using it and exchanging it for gold? What role do you see gold playing here? Yeah, Jim, I think that it is evidence that several central banks are buying gold, including China. But when we really look at how much gold China says it has, that reports to the IMF, it's a relatively small amount compared to the $3 trillion of currency reserves they have, of which, say, about $800 billion are in U.S. dollars. And so I think that uh, your point is well taken. That is, when the U.S. is involved in the trade in a you know, export or import. It's easy to understand why the dollar is used. But it's in these other cases, like Australia selling iron ore to China, why should it be in U.S. dollars? I'm not so sure it has to be in U.S. dollars. And there will probably be some erosion of this, uh, say, call it the transactional function of the dollar. After all, there's been some technological breakthroughs that allow for different payment systems. Brazil has a very good one. So does India. So does China. But these national platforms are only good if their currency is involved, while a system like SWIFT is good for any currency in the system. And that's a, it's a striking thing that happened, really. Uh, the SWIFT's uh, latest report for the month of July showed the dollar's use was at record levels. And while the RMB, the Chinese currency's use is up, it's not really coming at the expense of the dollar. But other currencies, like the euro, whose share has fallen roughly in half of what it was, say, a decade or so ago. So I do think that some central banks, especially after the U.S. and Europe, uh, froze Russia's central bank's assets. Many central banks, even allies of the U.S., are scared about that. I think about a country like Singapore, which is buying U.S. fighter planes and buying gold. So I think that the sanctions have encouraged some refocusing on gold and short and like storing it on shore in the individual countries so that if something happens, it's not vulnerable to sanctions. I want to talk about uh, what we're seeing right now. On the day you and I are speaking, oil just crossed over $89 a barrel. It's hitting our prediction of 90. We're just, what, less than a dollar away, and we see it going to 100. Let's talk about this, the problem that this creates for other countries. So as we see oil prices, let's just say it's $90 a barrel, and your currency is down 5 or 6% against the dollar, you're paying a lot more for oil. As bad as it is for us, it's even worse for you. Doesn't this create a problem for many countries? Yeah. So I think there's two ways to look at it. One way is the higher price of oil. People are, people are going to see higher inflation. So the knockoff effect, as you know, oil is in so many of our pro consumer products and it's important for the production of food. On the other hand, over time, I think that policymakers have learned, especially in Europe and the US, have learned that Higher oil prices are also a tax. Remember, economists, when they focus on inflation, what they're talking about is a general increase in the price level. When we talk about with the rise of oil and energy in general, it's really a relative price increase. So for example, the more money it takes me to fill my car with gasoline or heat my house, the less money I have for other discretionary spending. Those prices, it would exert a downward pressure on those prices. So uh, as we sit here today, like you say, oil is rallying sharply. Saudi Arabia and Russia, well, Saudi Arabia have extended their output cuts. Russia has extended its export reductions. Uh, at the same time, there's a couple of other things going on. Behind the scenes, it looks like the U.S. and the Iranians have sort of struck a little bit of a deal where more Iranian oil is coming into the market in exchange for the Iranians reducing their enrichment program and releasing some prisoners and also the U.S. freeing up some of the frozen assets. So we, we need to account for that as well. And I, I think that the bigger problem here with oil is something like this. The U.S., many U.S. states, many countries in Europe, uh, Japan, have said that after 2035, uh, they will no longer 
allow the sales of internal combustion gas-fueled automobiles. And so if you're in Saudi Arabia or in an oil producer, this is a big shock. This is a blow. This is, means that in 12 years, it's over. That is to say that the demand for oil after the end of the internal combustion engine uh, the demand for oil is going to fall sharply. Or that's what you have to assume. And so I think that uh, this has uh, sort of revived the reanimated Saudi Arabia's desire to act as that sweet producer and keep oil prices high to maximize the value of what they still have in the ground. It's only going to be good for the next dozen years or so. Mark, what about the problem that rising oil prices create for the Fed? Because one of the reasons that inflation rates came down is the price of oil came down from in the 100 range, it got down to just below 70. Now that we're at $90 oil, and you think about anything you buy in a store got there by a truck or a car or a van or something. So that kind of translates into the economy in terms of higher cost. And we all know the Fed can't create barrels of oil. The only thing it can do is kill economic growth. So what problem does this create for the Fed when Wall Street is hoping that they go on pivot here soon or at least go on pause? Yeah, you made a good point because, you know, uh, the day after we're talking today, the 12th on the 13th, the U.S. is going to report the August CPI. And I think that this gives us a flavor for that kind of dilemma you're talking about. We're likely to see the, the headline rate rise. The median forecast is for 0.6%, which would be a sharp month over month increase. And a lot of that's going to be because of energy prices. If we exclude energy, food and energy, we're looking at a 0.2% increase. So specifically, how does the Federal Reserve respond to this high oil prices? One is I think that the Federal Reserve, you know, they're talking about a soft landing and this tilts us over more towards recession. I want to say that several of the past, I want to say like the three or four out of the past recessions have been sparked, have been preceded by a doubling of the price of oil. So on one hand, the Federal Reserve is going to see this rise in oil prices as a deflationary, as something that's going to slow down the U.S. economy, weaken demand. On the other hand, as you mentioned, it's going to be picked up, in, as we're going to see in the headline inflation numbers. I think the Federal Reserve is going to look past those. And so I think that the market is still right to think that the Fed has maybe one more hike left in it. And then we have to begin talking about cuts next year. And I think that at next week's FOMC meeting, the Federal Reserve is likely to revise up growth. You know, in June, they thought that the economy would only grow by 1% this year. And that was a big increase from what they thought in March. And now, as they head into the September meeting, it looks to me like they're going to have to almost double their GDP forecast. And remember, from the Fed's point of view, the speed limit of the economy, the non-inflationary pace is about 1.8%. So I, I would expect the Federal Reserve to uh, probably revise up growth then sharply, maybe shave their unemployment forecast a bit lower, sort of continuing the trend that they've been doing. And inflation, I think, uh, you know, we're going to see inflation rise, the headline rise for the second consecutive month, but that core rate. And if you look at the core rate annualized, the last three months, uh, give me 0.2% for August. And we're looking at about a 1.2% for, I'm sorry, it'd be for the three months, it'd be 0.6%. So annualized, that's about 2.4% for the last three months of CPI, which we're heading closer to the Fed's target. So I think that the dilemma is more for other countries that are slowing down sharply, uh, like the Eurozone, uh, like Japan, which is, you know, the Japanese economy would have contracted in Q2 if it wasn't for exports. And that includes tourism. So we sort of regarded tourism as as exporting of hospitality services. So I think the U.S. is in a better position to, to stand this higher oil prices, given the resilience of the U.S. economy. I think the problem is going to be more in 2024, where these impacts are going to be more felt, and it's a, a presidential election here, here in the States. Yeah, everything I've seen 
on Wall Street and a lot of the prominent economists have just basically moved into the future of recession. So we were talking about a second half recession with Goldman Sachs. Now they're talking about the first part of next year. And also something that we're paying close attention to is almost record bankruptcies, Mark. And, uh, you know, if they keep pushing this, we all know what happens. If they push too hard, push too high, they end up in a financial crisis. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think that's really the, the link in all this is uh, we're already seeing this. You know, we saw this flare up in March with the uh, regional banks and interest rates have gotten higher since then. And deposits, I think we lost about $70 billion last week or two weeks ago. The data comes to the lag from deposits. And we're already seeing the uh, some of the bank share indices uh, weaken below the sort of the trend line they've been following since the end of March. Uh, we're going through that. And I, too, am concerned that that is what uh, kills this business cycle with Puts us over the edge into a much weaker economy, coming uh, the impulses from the financial sector. But I also think you're right, Jim, that economists, including people like myself, hesitant to say we're wrong. And instead, we just postpone and push out further our forecasts. I still think, though, that we haven't really repealed the business cycle. And part of the strength of the U.S. economy this year coming from two sources. One is fiscal. And that is to say the budget deficit looks like running about twice what it was a year ago. And secondly, we are seeing an increase in real wages. That is our earnings increase adjusted for inflation. But I agree with you that the commercial real estate is going to, uh, you know, a lot of these, a lot of these have to be, uh, a lot of these loans are up uh, 2024, 2025. And this is going to lead to more defaults. I'm looking at auto loan defaults, which are the highest since 2008. I, I think that what, what many of us often forget, even those of us involved in the markets, is that there's a wholesale and retail price for money. The wholesale price of money is what Banks charge each other. Right now, that's about five and a half percent. The retail price for money is what my credit card wants for me, the 21% annualized. And that's the wholesale, that's the retail price for money. And because there's such a gap between the retail and wholesale, I think that some of this, the financial strains are, you're going to see the financial strains on households, small and medium sized businesses. Yeah, I just don't see, like in California, our definition of a millionaire is a homeowner. I mean, you're talking about track homes that are worth one and a half million. I don't know how people can afford to buy that when we're looking at seven and a half to eight percent mortgage rates. Yeah, to, to me, that's part of the problem is going to happen is uh, the U.S. economy is going to become uh, less. I mean, I should say that the divergence is going to widen out further. It's sort of like to those who have is given. Uh, those who have, who have uh, liquidity, who have money, who have the skills for the new economy can prosper. And those that don't, I think that we have a relatively weak social safety net and uh, we're, we're going to see it for this next generation. So, Mark, given all this and the fact that it's likely, I don't know if it comes in November or, but it looks like another quarter point rate hike is coming. There's about 50, 60% chance of that. And given the fact that we know the economy will slow down and if there is trouble, it's more likely to surface into next year because there's just so much fiscal spending that's going on now. What would you do as an investor given these circumstances? Yeah, that's a good question. I haven't, uh, I haven't really bought more stocks this year besides my sort of the discipline of that dollar cost averaging of the, f the money gets taken out of my paycheck for the 401k. I'm sort of just building cash. I've been uh, buying 5% uh, T-bills. Looks attractive to me. Tell you one thing that I bought that I, I still like, and that is one of the attractive things about Mexico is they have much higher interest rates in the U.S. Uh, the government uh, just submitted a budget for next year, and they're going to be giving Pemex enough money to cover like three quarters of their debt. And so I bought a bond from Pemex that expires early 2025, I think in April of 
2025. And it's paying a little bit better than 8%. So for me, uh, the, the takeaway, even though Pemex bonds aren't for everybody, the takeaway, I think, is that for the first time in a long time, in many years, perhaps since before the great financial crisis, uh, there, I think there's some interesting opportunities in fixed income space, even if it's just a short-term build. I mean, our, our two-year note is yielding close to 5%. And that's that. And risk-free, meaning that you'll get paid back, even if there's volatility in the yield and the price of the, of the two-year note. I like the uh, fixed income here. I think we could get uh, halfway decent yields and sleep better at night than trying to play the stock market, which earnings, higher interest rates, these bankruptcies, global uncertainty, I think uh, sort of scary from the stock market. Valuations still seem to be a bit stretched. So I think I like the, the short end of the, of the curve. All right. Well, listen, Mark, as we close, why don't you tell our listeners, uh, you've written a new book recently. Tell them about the book and how they can follow you. Yeah, so I have a blog called uh, Mark to Market, uh, Mark with a C, and uh, I am on Twitter, uh, Mark Making Sense, which comes from my first book, Making Sense of the Dollar. But my second book, which is really more of a, of a sort of a more passionate about, the first book is really a summary of what I've learned on Wall Street and the currency markets over, over my career. But the second book is called Political Economy of Tomorrow. And what I think I'm doing in that book is retelling the story of King Midas. Remember King Midas from Greek mythology? Uh, he was cursed by the gods and everything he touched turned to gold. At first, it was a good idea. It looked great. He touched a tree or a piece of fruit and it turned to gold. Like, how wonderful. And then he tried to drink some wine and hug his daughter. And of course, the outcome wasn't quite as good. And I think that uh, this sort of typifies where we are in the high income countries. And that is we are choking on our wealth, literally, even though it might not seem like that now, as I was mentioning, the higher fixed income rates, but it seems to me that there's surplus all around us. And because of that, I think that the next, what's going to happen after we digest these shocks that have hit us. And I think that the most likely scenario is a return to what the economists sort of called the great moderation, low growth, low inflation, low profits, low interest rates. And I think we get that on the other side of this business cycle. And so uh, take a look at the book. Uh, my protagonist is a guy named Charles Conant, C-O-N-A-N-T. And it turns out, kind of in a, in a kind of a bizarre way, He's my protagonist, and I've been studying him since the uh, he was an advisor to presidents around the late 1800s, early 1900s. And as I was doing research on my book, it turned out that he worked for Brown Brothers Harriman, well, Brown Brothers at the time, about 100 years before I did. And so he's my protagonist. I think he's the one who brings uh, Marx and Keynes to the U.S. in a non-revolutionary way. I kind of think that he proposed the Belt Road Initiative long before President Xi of China did. All right. Well, listen, Mark, as always, it's a pleasure having you on the program. You have a great rest of the year. Good luck. Thank you very much, Jim. That concludes our weekend edition of the Financial Sense News Hour. To speak with our financial planning and wealth management team, give us a call at 888-486-3939 or go to financialsense.com and click where it says Contact Us. If you aren't already a subscriber to our weekday podcast and would like to listen to more of our content where we regularly interview book authors, industry experts, and strategists from around the globe, go to Financial Sense and hit the subscribe button. On behalf of Financial Sense NewsHour and the Financial Sense Wealth Management Team, we hope you have a pleasant weekend. 
Financial Sense News Hour is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be considered as a solicitation or offer to purchase or sell any securities. The investments, investment strategies, and investment philosophies discussed or presented on the News Hour each involve their own unique risk factors, which are not discussed on the show. Responses to listener inquiries are based on the personal opinions of the Financial Sense staff and do not take into account listener suitability, objectives, or risk tolerance. Financial Sense News Hour and its parent company shall not be liable for any financial losses that result from investing in any companies mentioned in financial sense or arising out of the use of any material on the news hour. Be advised that you invest at your own risk.